0: Let's pray together. Father, I pray that through Psalm 89, you would teach us that your steadfast love will endure forever. And I pray that you would convince us of your faithfulness, even if things never get better in our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I want to take aim this morning at one of the underlying narratives of our culture, one of the the driving ideas that informs the way that many people think about their lives. It's this idea of progress, and um, you, you, you may have heard people talk about progressive Christians, Uh, You may have heard people talk about progressive ideas in politics, and um, I want to uh, attack this idea of progress. So I have several things that I want to say about that. First, um, I think it's demonstrable, and and there are people who have have, um, written at length on this, I think it's demonstrable that this idea of progress really comes from the Christian idea of movement toward the kingdom of God. And what's happened is this Christian idea of us making our way toward the millennial kingdom and then the new heaven and new earth, uh, that idea has been stripped of all sacred uh, connotations and, and it's been um, alleviated of all of its supernatural burdens. And what you've got left is this idea that we're going to use our, our science and our reason and our technology to address the problems of society. Medicine is going to make things better. We get the right smart people working on the problems and that's going to make things better and we are going to make progress. And, and a quintessential statement of this um, is what President Obama said when he accepted the nomination um, of, for the, back in 2008, June 3rd, 2008. He, he said these words. He said, uh, generations from now, we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick and good jobs to the jobless. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. This was the moment when we ended a war and secured our nation and restored our image as the last best hope on earth. If your faith is in progress... I think your faith was shattered by the last election, right? I mean, I think the last, ev- the last election would be evidence that we are not making progress in good directions. No offense to anybody. Um, and, and I would also say this. Um, progress, progress does not provide the kind of willingness to sacrifice that, that is necessary for things actually to get better. And progress does not... Uh, create the kind of solidarity among people. These these ideas, and and this was really brought home to me by this this book that I've just um, completed reading called A Stone of Hope. It's about the civil rights movement. And the guy shows how the, the liberals, American liberals in the 1920s and 30s, they were committed to seeing black people's lives get better. But he writes... Liberals, though sincere in their devotion to black rights, did not see any reason to do anything drastic to promote them. The reason is because they believe in progress. It's going to happen on its own. And then this this author sets out to demonstrate, and he shows it convincingly, that what gave the civil rights activists what he calls the guts and the discipline to stand against the dogs and the fire hoses... What gave them this was their conviction that God was on their side and their commitment to biblical justice. This is what, this is what in, in the words of this author, David Chapel, this is what made the ideas of civil rights move. It was Christianity that actually achieved the progress. So we're going to look at Psalm 89 this morning, and my... Uh, assertion to you is that progress and technology and reason are not going to save the world. What's going to save the world is what God has promised to do in this psalm. And we're going to see all the wonderful promises in this psalm and the challenges to to the reality of uh, or the fulfillment, the realization of the promises. Psalm 89 is going to fall into five parts. And I've, I've uh, given you a kind of chiastic structure there in your bulletin, in the inside cover of your bulletin. Uh, you, can, you can look at that, and I, we'll make recourse to this as we make our way through this psalm. It's a long psalm. It's 53 verses. My son said to me yesterday, why do you preach such long passages? Because it, was, it took so long yesterday to work on this thing. And he said, Uncle Denny preaches like two or three verses. <laughs> Here we are in Psalm 89, and we're going to try to do the whole thing. Uh, this is a mosque of Ethan the Ezraite. And this guy, Ethan, uh, there, were, there were guys named Ethan around uh, David's time. And, and there's uncertainty. I think it's, it's hard to tell whether this guy, Ethan, is a contemporary of David or whether he's, say, a contemporary of Jeremiah. Either way, what he says in Psalm 89 is understandable. So, you know, if you get your concordance out and look up Ethan, you can find uh, references to him in the the Old Testament that would put you in either context. Um, If he's a contemporary with Jeremiah, maybe he's seen Jerusalem fall. If he's a contemporary with David, I think he could study Deuteronomy and Leviticus and other passages and know Jerusalem is going to fall. So he could be uh, projecting this into the future or he could be writing After it's happened, I don't know. But it seems that what he's responding to is uh, the exile of of the nation in 586 B.C. But that's not where he starts. Where he starts is with God's steadfast love. Look at what he says in in verses 1 and 2 here. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations which he's accomplished, hasn't he? He wrote this text intending to communicate God's steadfast love and faithfulness to all generations, and since he wrote it, this text has been in use, making known God's steadfast love. Then those two key words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are repeated in verse 2, where he says, For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness, So I think we can see that verses 1 and 2 are dealing with the same thing, aren't they? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Those terms are repeated. And and what I think Ethan is trying to do for us is show us that he's going to give us the message of the psalm in two verse sets. And that's going to continue until a surprising interruption of this pattern of of the psalm coming in two verse sets. And then then he says next, in verses 3 and 4, he turns to what kind of steadfast love he has in view. So verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn. So if you're thinking about Hebrew parallelism, uh, making a covenant is in parallel with I have sworn. So, uh, so this is what God has done. I have sworn to David. So the chosen one is also in parallel with David, and the Lord identifies him as my servant. So what Ethan is doing here is he's saying, let me tell you about God's steadfast love. God made a promise to David. And what's interesting about this is that in 2 Samuel 7, um, the promises to David are not identified there as a covenant, nor are, uh, when, when the story is retold in 1 Chronicles 17, nor there are the promises that God made to David identified as a covenant. So I think Ethan is interpreting God's promises to David as a covenant. And and by doing that, he's lifting the promises to David up to set them on par with promises that God made with Abraham and and then the arrangement that God made with Moses. And he's putting what God is doing through David on that same level with those earlier covenants. And then he goes on, verse 4, I will establish your offspring. And Denny Denny read the glorious King James earlier in the service, and it used the word seed. I don't know if he meant to do that on purpose, but that's what he did. Uh, We had the word seed there in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's the word that the ESV renders offspring here. We'll talk more about that as we continue. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, the fact that the promises to David have been exalted to the level of the promises with Abraham, means that what God is doing when he makes these promises to David is saying something like this. This is how I'm going to save the world. This is how I'm going to set things right. This is how I'm going to heal people emotionally, spiritually, physically. This is how I'm going to overcome the evil one who has corrupted my world through the the introduction of, of temptation and sin and death. This is what I'm going to do. And from Ethan's response, let me say one more thing about verses 1 through 4. Notice how at the end of verse 1, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then at the end of verse 4, you've got really the same phrase in Hebrew, but they translate it slightly differently, for all generations. And those two phrases, they lock verses 1 through 4 together. So we're getting two verse units that are joined together as four verse units. And that's going to continue as we make our way through this this psalm. So this first part, verses 1 through 4, is about God's steadfast love for the world. God's faithfulness for the salvation of all creation through what he's going to do through the seed of David. And from Ethan's response, we can see that that's what this is about. Look at what Ethan says in verses 5 and 6. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Ethan is saying that because he's saying, okay, God has just announced he's going to save the world through David in verses 1 through 4. And, and the way that the heavenly hosts should respond is they should all erupt in praise to God. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. The assembly of the holy ones is a way for him to refer to the inhabitants of the heavenly realms. And then he continues along these lines, verse 6. And, and what he's doing, what he's starting into here, is he's starting to join in the worship that he's just called for from the heavenly hosts. He says, for who in the skies can be compared To the Lord. So he's advocating that the heavenly hosts worship God for what he's going to do on earth. And then he's saying, look around you, angelic beings, heavenly beings. None of you compare to the Lord. And then he goes on to continue to talk about about the Lord in verse 7, joining into the praise that he summoned from the realms of heaven. Verse 7, he describes the Lord a God greatly, to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him." I want to read you a quotation, having just read those words, from a lady named Barbara Ehrenreich. She wrote this this book called Living with a Wild God, and ironically, she's an atheist. So here's an atheist, writing a book entitled Living with a Wild God. And she's, she's recounting this experience that she had that that's challenged her atheism. She says this. At, at the age of 17, on an empty street just before dawn, I found whatever I, I had been looking for since the articulation of my quest. She was... On a quest that many young people are on. She's looking for the meaning of life and why she's here and what's the point of existence and all the rest. And then she, she goes on it was an experience that, as others have said, could not be described. Here we leave the jurisdiction of language, where nothing is left but the vague gurgles of surrender expressed in words like ineffable and transcendent. There were no visions. No prophetic voices or visits by totemic animals, just this blazing everywhere. Something poured into me, and I poured out into it. This was not the passive, beatific merger with the all as promised by the eastern mystics. It was a furious encounter with a living substance. Ecstasy would be the word for this, but only if you acknowledge that it doesn't occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it can resemble an outbreak of violence. So it's an amazing quote. How did she remain an atheist? Well, she compared her experience with existing religions, and she thought that they just didn't match up. She she thought the God of the Bible didn't correspond to what she had experienced. But look at these words here in verse 7 of Psalm 89, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Ethan is describing one who is among the holy ones of the heavens. And he is describing one who is more terrible and more dreadful, more fearful than any who surround him? He says it again. He, it, it's like he's, he's beyond the realm of language, as Barbara Ehrenreich said, and he's left to just repeat himself in verse 7. He's kind of already said this in verse 6. Look at verse 7. Oh Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, Oh Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, It's almost as though he's speechless before the Almighty. So so Ethan, in this four-verse set, he calls the heavens to to join in the worship of God. And having called the heavens to join in the worship of God, he next begins to articulate God's triumphant victory on earth. And, And so what he's going to discuss now is God's, Saving power on earth. Verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves wa- rise, you still them. So imagine the weight of water in the oceans. And it's not too much for the Lord. All that massive water that, that, that's in the seas heaving on the earth. And it will not overwhelm the Lord. And then having introduced the waters in verse 10, he says in verse 10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. Now we need to, we need to understand who Rahab is. So I want to give you a reference or two. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but, but I want to um, read to you a statement or two. So Isaiah chapter 30 verse 7, Isaiah says this, Egypt's help is worthless and empty, Therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So Isaiah identifies Rahab with Egypt. And in fact, in the, in the immediately, well, a Psalm two, two Psalms back, Psalm 87, verse 4, the psalmist writes, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, and Rahab there probably signifies Egypt. Rahab also, however, signifies this, this serpentine, uh, dragonish um, beast that, that was thought to inhabit the waters. So, so listen to Isaiah 51 verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea? So do you hear what's happening there? The defeat of Rahab is, is the parting of the Red Sea. And so probably here in Psalm 89 also, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. This is referring to the parting of the Red Sea so that Israel could pass through on dry land, and it's interpreted as a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, as God defeating this, this great snake that inhabits the waters, God crushing this spiritual enemy that stands behind the physical reality of the nation of Egypt. I think that's what's going on. The Bible is talking about both physical and spiritual realities with this symbolism. And what's being celebrated is God's ability to defeat Satan and deliver his people at the parting of the Red Sea, at the exodus from Egypt. So look at what he goes on to say there in verse 10. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And all over the Bible we read about how at the Exodus God saved Israel with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. So there's a, there's a two-verse set in verses 9 and 10. Now he's going to change in verses 11 and 12 to God's sovereign dominion over all creation. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. And then these two significant mountains in Israel, Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. So, what he's doing here, verses one through four, he introduces God's covenant with David, God's steadfast love through which God is going to save the world. Verses five through eight, he summons the hosts of heaven to worship God in response. And then in verses nine through 12, he speaks of God's sovereign power over all creation. And Next, in in verses 13 through 16, he's going to celebrate, again, God's saving power and God's character. So verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. But this is might that is right. Look at verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So it's as though he envisions God seated on the throne. And the foundation of that throne are God's own attributes. Righteousness. God in himself always does what is right. In fact, who God is determines what's right. If you don't have something ultimate like this, how do you determine what righteousness is? Well, our understanding of righteousness derives from the character of God. Who God is determines what is right. And then justice, this is like the, the correct application of righteousness. And so if, if righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, you could, you could render that last line of verse 14, Steadfast love and faithfulness are before your face. It's almost like steadfast love and faithfulness are radiating out from the presence of God because this is who he is. He is a God who is loving and righteous. He holds both of those things together. And then in response to this, verse 15, blessed are the people who know the festal shout. The festal shout is a a celebration at one of Israel's feasts. And the people who get to participate in the worship of God, celebrating God's redemption, they are the people who are blessed. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. That word face, at the end of verse 14 again, steadfast love and faithfulness are before your face. And these people, they walk in the light of God's face. Which is to say, they walk in the light of God's steadfast love and God's faithfulness. The knowledge of God informs their lives. And then he he concludes about these people who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. These are people who worship God all the day. People who know God live lives of worship. Romans 12.1 is not a new idea. This is an old idea. That all of life is for worship. So, in in verses 5 through 16, what the psalmist has celebrated is God's saving power. He's called the heavens to celebrate God, and then he's he's celebrated God on earth. In the vast middle section of this psalm, verses 17 through 37, uh, the psalmist, Ethan, is now going to rehearse the details of God's covenant with David. And, And to show that this starts at... At verse 17, let me me take you into verse 18 where he says, Our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so shield and king are in parallel with one another, aren't they? And this, this, this communicates that David as the king, and then ultimately Jesus, praise God, is the shield for his people. He's our protector and defender and champion. He's the one who does what Saul refused to do. Go out and fight the enemy on behalf of the people. And then if we proceed back into verse 17, you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Well, horn is just like shield. This is also a way of talking about about David. So the king is the shield and he is the horn. The horn is a symbol of military might because we're, we're, we're dealing with a world where they have these flocks of animals and the alpha male in the flock He's got got the biggest horns and he defeats all the others. And this this is what Israel's king was to be. And so he also is the strength. So what I'm telling you is that in verses 17 and 18, I think strength, horn, shield, and king are all ways of referring to Israel's king. And look at verse 17. You are the glory of their strength. This was true of David, wasn't it? David said to Saul, when I went out to fight, when, I, when, when a bear or a lion came and took one of, the, one of the sheep of the flock, God gave the enemy into my hand. God was David's glory. And how much more is it not true of Jesus, right? The glory of God is the strength of Jesus in ways that transcend anything that we could say about David By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. And then in verse 19, Ethan begins to talk about what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You you, you remember that at the end of that passage, it was referenced as a vision. And here he says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, that's David, and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. And you, and you may remember how the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. And then he chose, he didn't choose in, in, in the narrative when, when Samuel anoints David. As his brothers are being trotted before him, Samuel says, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And, and he chose David. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. So in verses 17 through 20, what we have is is the the initiation of the covenant with David, the choice of David. And what we're going to have in verses 21 through 24 is a promise of victory for David. So I have anointed him at the end of verse 20. Verse 21, "So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outw- outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him." And then verse 23 reflects Genesis 3:15, "I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted." Note how in verse 21, my hand, my arm shall strengthen him and then the Lord will crush his foes. This is just like verse 10 where the Lord crushed Rahab with his mighty arm. So what the Lord does to save is what he's going to do through the king, the future king to save. And then what characterizes the Lord, faithfulness and steadfast love is what's going to characterize the king there in verse 24. And this is going to issue in the worldwide kingdom, the kingdom of God that God has promised in verses 25 through 28. This is nothing less than the purpose for which God created the world. For the, the, the descendant of Adam, who is the image and likeness of God, to exercise God's dominion over God's world. Verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And then this is Second uh, Samuel 7, uh, 13 and 14, and Psalm 2, 7. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him, verse 27, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him So the Lord is guaranteeing that he's going to save the world through the future king from David's line, the one promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. At this point, in verses 29 through 32, something very interesting happens. Look at verse 29. I will establish his offspring. That's that word seed again. And then look at verse 30. The ESV renders this, if his children forsake my law. You could translate this, if his sons forsake my law. For some reason, he doesn't say, if his seed forsake my law. It's like Ethan is distinguishing between the future seed and the sons who are going to descend from David. And and there's kind of an ambiguity in, in 2 Samuel 7 and across the Old Testament, where um, the Lord does say to David, I'm going to build you a house. And that house, is, it, it, it implies a line of kings that descend from David. And then he says, and I will establish your seed on the throne forever. So, so there's kind of a dynamic here between the descendants and the descendant. So look again at verse 29. I will establish his seed forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. That descendant, the one, is going to reign forever. And then he deals with the the ones between David and him in verse 30. Verses 30 through 32, really. If his children forsake my law, if his sons forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod." And their iniquity with stripes. This this sounds very much like 2 Samuel chapter 7, doesn't it? So the one seed is going to be established forever, but the kings between David and him could experience God's discipline. And now in verses 33 through 37, there's this confirming oath for the seed. He says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Now At the end of verse 36, we're at the end of our, our four-verse unit that we've been having all the way through this psalm. And so we, we expect a new four-verse unit at verse, seven, verse 37, but we don't get it we get the thought of verse 36 continued. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And then here again, we expect, because we've had these two verse units all the way to this point, we expect that verse 37 is going to go with verse 38. But notice that Selah at the end of verse 37. It's creating a divide between verse 37 and 38. And then verse 38 goes in a totally new direction. We're shocking us, he says, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. So, so the reason I'm talking to you about the structure is because I think it's really uh, beautiful. This is artistry for the psalmist to match the form of the psalm to the meaning of the psalm. Right? He's created this expectation that we're going to have these two-verse units that are going to build into these four-verse units. And then he gets to this place where, to everyone's surprise, because he's been affirming this whole chapter, God's steadfast, faithful love to David that's going to go on forever. But now the Davidic king has been dethroned. His, his crown is in the dust. His walls are broken down. His city lies in ruins. And the people are exiled from the land. And, and to signify that, the psalmist breaks the structure. It's like he takes this carefully crafted piece of literature and he rips it in half right there in the middle of verses 37 and 38. And this reflects how he feels about this situation. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The king from David, is going to he's supposed to be on the throne. It's not supposed to be this way. I, I trust that you can identify with the way that the psalmist feels. Um, it, it's, it's like what Peter Kreeft, a philosopher, describes when he recounts the story of a seven-year-old boy whose cousin had died at the age of three. And, and unfortunately, this, this little boy had secular parents and he asked his mother, where's my cousin now? She didn't believe in God or the afterlife. And so she could not with integrity talk to him about heaven. Instead, she followed the modern secular narrative. Your cousin has gone back to the earth, from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that it's your cousin's life that is fertilizing those flowers. The little boy screamed, I don't want him to be fertilizer. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not fertilizer. We're not fertilizer. Death is not what we were created for. And that's how this psalmist feels. You've made these promises to David. He's supposed to be reigning. And now you've cast him off and rejected him. You're full of wrath against your anointed. Look at verse 39. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. How can this be? Look back up at verse 34. I will not violate my covenant. You've renounced it, God. Let me observe. I think the psalmist is shocked, but he's not bitter. He, he is just presenting to the Lord his situation. You've renounced the covenant with your servant, you've defiled his crown in the dust. Verse 40 you've breached all his walls, you've laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. If you're into literary structure and you want to talk about this passage, this section of the psalm later, we can do that. But I'm not going to keep you here until like, you know, 1230 so that I can describe this for you. Um, so you can thank me later if you're, if you're hungry and you want to get to lunch. I'm just going to keep trucking on. He's, he's saying, um, you've, you've broken the covenant by disciplining the descendant of David. His foes plunder him, and you're not strengthening him in battle. And then verse 45 You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. We can think of Josiah being cut down at a young age. We can think of that last king of Israel who was blinded, having seen his sons slaughtered and then carried off in shackles to Babylon. And then at the end of verse 45, Selah. How does Ethan respond to this? His response is not faith in progress. His response is not to say, things are going to get better because that's what happens in the world. His response is a response of faith. Every one of these questions is a question that comes from a heart that believes what God has revealed. He's going to cling to the promise to the seed of David. Look at what he says in verse 46. How long, O Lord? That implies, I know this isn't going to last forever. This is not what you created the world for it to be like. So how long? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then in verse 47, what he says essentially is, won't you do something during my lifetime? Verse 47, remember How short my time is. And this is just like Psalm 88. Where we saw the psalmist saying. I want you to do something for me now. While I'm alive. So that I can praise you for it. Remember how short my time is. And then there's this exclamation. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. I think the vanity in view there is death. We're all going to die. We're all going to die and there will be little remembrance of us. Verse 48 has very interesting questions. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Here I think think he may be thinking about himself in the first instance. I'm going to die. Won't you do something in my day? But then as this, as these words resonate with the rest of the psalm, what man can live and never see death? And we think about this seed of David who's going to be established on a throne forever. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? These are suggestive questions that, that may, may be intended to respond to this promise of an eternal king. And now in the last section in verses 49 through 52, he he's, he's, Ethan is pleading with the Lord to act. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it, Lord? I know you're going to do this. When? Why not now? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Um, The enemies are reproaching not only Ethan, but the people and their God. And in this context referring to the anointed, to David, um, it it sets up an expectation for one who would fulfill what Psalm 69.9 says. I bore the reproaches of those who reproached you. And Paul, of course, quotes that with reference to Jesus in, in Romans 15. And then he ends in faith in verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I want things to get better now in my life. But they're not. They're horrible now. We've got these magnificent promises about this Glorious kingdom where there's peace and righteousness and justice. And the throne where those things are to be established is lying in the dust because of our sin. And, and I want it to change, but it's not changing. But I believe that God is going to change it. So blessed be the Lord forever. If you're here and you'd like your circumstances to change... And you look at the situation and you know, there's no way for this to change. Maybe my loved one who passed away, they're not coming back. But God's gonna raise the dead. God's gonna, so I may have to wait till the resurrection to see the real, I'd like for it to happen now during my lifetime. But God is gonna raise the dead. God is going to raise the dead. There's this great quotation from, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who called the death of a Christian the supreme festival on the road to freedom. He said that as he was awaiting death in the cell at the concentration camp. Death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. And D.L. Moody, he said, he said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. The Bible has cultivated for us these magnificent hopes. And, and what Ethan is modeling for us is prayer that God would fulfill those hopes, cause them to be realized. And he's not having them realized in his own day. But he's modifi- modeling a faithful response to the waiting. And all through this Psalm, there, there, there are these references to the heavenly beings and there are references to the Rahab, that, that uh, de- supernatural satanic power that God defeated. And if you're if you're here this morning and you're you're sick of the secularists uh, who have who have stripped heaven and earth of anything supernatural, um, I think you can you can probably identify with Psalm 89. This guy, Lamin Saneh, who's an African, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He wrote about the way that that Africans from his culture responded when the gospel came. He says uh, that that it was not the old spells turning benign from it was not that the old spells turning benign from overuse, had dulled the appetite, but that under challenge. They spent their potency and sparked a clamor for a valiant God. What he's saying is that their, their traditional religion awoke in them a desire for a God who could conquer the powers that they feared. And then he says, People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible Savior, And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. That's beautiful. Christ has conquered. And the good news, the good news is that as is prefigured here in Psalm 89, as is anticipated all through this psalm, the seed of David came and he met every spiritual need that we have. He redeemed us. He he died in our place. He gave himself on our behalf. He satisfied God's justice. He broke the power of evil. He has accomplished everything necessary to save us to the uttermost. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we would invite you to join us in hoping for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We would invite you to claim as your own The blessing pronounced on all who love His appearing. Progress is going to disappoint you. But Jesus will come. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. And we long for the day when... when the skies will split and the trump will sound and the king will come on the white horse and he will defeat every remaining power ranged against him and he will merit all knees bowing to him and we will see his glory and we will sing his praise and the dead in Christ will rise first Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the way that the gospel gives us something to believe and a solid and lasting hope. We thank you, Father, for the way that the gospel gives us significance for our daily lives. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to communicate the gospel winsomely and convincingly in our day. We pray, Lord, that if there are those here with objections or questions, we pray that they would find someone afterwards, me or Denny or Matt or any of the others, Lord, to discuss these things with. And we pray, Father, that that you would guide the conversation and by your truth answer every question and satisfy every objection and win people to yourself by the power of the Spirit.